we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 8, Fake News versus Fact-Based Journalism, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Patterns and Paradigms. We hope you enjoy the discussion we had last week with Mecca Mitchell, the Senior Vice President for Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Engagement, as well as the Chief Diversity Officer for Westchester Medical Center. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and take a moment to share an episode with a friend. Bubble or trend? The weather in Texas. I certainly hope that the storm last week is not a trend. Like everything else in the United States, why shouldn't a winter storm be polarizing? The entire state loses its electricity, but in the rush to blame someone, you could choose a severe storm that challenged a self-contained electric grid that was not made for severe weather, or you could blame the fact that some of the energy that Texas produces comes from green energy, wind turbines, and solar arrays. We can only hope that the desire to blame alternative energy is the bubble and that the trend is to seek more comprehensive, integrated, and innovative ways of addressing energy needs is the trend. But hey, it's Texas. So whether there is a bubble or a trend, well, let's just say that if in the midst of the impact of one of the most severe storms in the state's history, one of its U.S. senators decides it's time to head to Cancun. Well, it is part of a trend, but not the kind we just described. Before I introduce our guest, let me ask my partner at Pattern, Joe Chaika. What's up, Joe? How you doing, Joe? Pretty well. Surviving another storm up this way. It's just incredible. It just doesn't stop snowing. I always thought this was like a bad Stephen King book. What's happening this week? Hey, we're working pretty hard on putting the class together for our community rebuilders program, where I think what we're, it, it, Joe, it's a takeoff on something you and I created a couple of years ago called community builders, where we work with people on an idea that they may have for their community and try to take it to a full-blown plan for a project. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Five years ago, you and I came up with this brain brainchild of an idea of creating the community builders. And it worked out pretty well. We had two years worth of classes, and we had 
anywhere between six and eight, uh, you know, professionals uh, go through the course and they took a project and we try to help them make it come to fruition. And we had a couple of really good successes, downtown Middletown, Garnerville Arts Center, uh, the Ritz Theater. So it was a very, very valuable program. I think that a lot of people got got a lot of good information out of and, and their projects did well. So, you know, last year we were thinking about doing the class again. And with all of the things going on with the pandemic, we thought, are we really building a community or as you said, are we rebuilding the community? And I think the rebuilding fits very well. So last week we had an information session on the upcoming class and we had somewhere around 60 or 65 people register for the information center. We had 40 in attendance, which was great. And because the others couldn't attend last week, we decided this week we're going to run it again. And so on Wednesday, February 24th at 5 p.m., you can tune in to the Community Rebuilders Information Session to learn more about this year's class, which is going to start in April, run through June. It's very much a fast-moving uh, boot camp style uh, community development project and or program. And uh, applications will be due March 1st. Well, and I think we're, we're trying to limit the size of the class to ensure that uh, pattern staff can give the participants the kind of attention they need in developing their projects. So I think our goal is to really have only 10. And I think there's only just, you know, two or three slots left. That's correct. Uh, you know, be, if we go beyond 10 people, then we th we think that we can't give the focus and the attention on the projects that, that they deserve. Um, and it's going to be very intensive, both for the participants and for our own staff, because we always take things and make them our own, if you will. And And when we do this, we put more time in then we probably should on some of these projects because we just like them so much and we want to see our communities advance. Well, and I think that you've hit it on the head, Joe, that you know, if someone comes to Pattern with an idea and we think we can help them, then we kind of adopt it and we want it to come to fruition. And there's been a lot of projects that we've been involved in over the years that we feel just that way. Anything else going on this week, Jeff? Well, funny you should ask. <laughs> Tune into our YouTube channel, go to our website, and you'll be able to find the event for this month's housing webinar and is focusing on the moratorium on evictions. We have an all-star panel that, that we did a pre-recording on, um, and we're talking to um, advocates, we're talking to uh, lenders in affordable housing, uh, talking to legal services, and really trying to hit every side of the eviction issue. Uh, both of what's going on now and, unfortunately, what's probably coming down the line in you know, four, six, maybe eight months. There's going to be a heck of a crisis that we're going to be facing. Um, and this webinar really covers a lot of those issues. Well, the eviction crisis is the fact that people have not been able to make their rent payments. Landlords on the other side do need money in order to maintain their properties so this is really an important discussion. It is. And, it, you know, in, in short, I, I'd like to say that the rent crisis for people not paying 
is critical to the landlord. Obviously, it's critical to the tenant because, you know, that and that's why the eviction is there. You know, nobody wants to get kicked out on on the street. And so, you know, the 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 moratorium itself is important because it does stop the eviction. But as we all say in this business, the rent does come due. And that's the big problem is that there may be some tenants that are four, six, 10, 12 months behind in rent. And how do they make up those kinds of arrears? And so some of the guests are talking about some of the rent relief programs. Um, and again, our legal services representative um, is talking about, you know, taking care of some issues where there may be some unscrupulous landlords uh, in the business. Joe, thanks a lot for taking that issue on, and and it's going to be enormous as this uh, as we come out of the pandemic, and the expectation is people need to pay their rent. So, um, a lot going on here at Pattern. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking with Barry Rothfeld. Barry has had a long and distinguished career in journalism, from reporter to editor to publisher. Barry has been in probably every position in the print media world. He has chaired the New York Newspaper Publisher Association's Board of Directors, and as both executive editor and publisher of the Poughkeepsie Journal here in Dutchess County, he is well-versed on the issues facing the Hudson Valley. Hi, Barry. Uh, Good to have you on Patterns and Paradigms. How are you doing? And... It sure seems like, judging by our Zoom call, you're not looking at snow right now. No, Jonathan, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Even though we're um, 1,200 miles apart or so, I'm uh, actually here in sunny Florida. And um, I could tell you that I could join this Chamber of Commerce if I had to. <laughs> and And how have you managed through the pandemic? Have you been down in Florida or where, you know? Well, we've been been down here since uh, February 1st or so. And um, other than that, we've been just like everyone else. We've been hunkered down in uh, Hopewell Junction, New York, and uh, managing our way through it, wearing our masks religiously. Uh, We now double mask, even even, uh, though we did get our first um, vaccination. Uh, but we still take it very, very carefully. We haven't eaten inside a restaurant yet. Um, yeah. We basically bring food home. We've eaten outside a restaurant where we've been comfortable that the tables were far enough apart. And uh, even after we get our second vaccination, I think we're going to be doing that same thing, just to, yeah. to be extra careful. Yeah, I think this is going to, all of 2021, there's going to be some aspect of this pandemic that's going to be with us. So, you know, Barry, I, I've known you since you've been a, you know, you've been a publisher. You've told me about, you know, parts of your career in, in state organizations, in the media. Um, but why don't, for our listeners, why don't you briefly walk through your bio and, and tell us your career, which makes, it, it will make it clear to our listeners why I asked you to join me on this topic. Well, thanks. Um, well, I wasn't always a publisher. I wasn't always on the business side of the uh, media side business. I started as a reporter, actually. Um, you know, I um, 
back in college, I was editor of my college paper um, and um, went on to Columbia Journalism School and got a job with Gannett right out of college at the Portchester Daily Item in Westchester. Um, and I stayed in Westchester for 17 years in various uh, reporting and editing roles and became senior managing editor down there. Um, and it was a great um, opportunity, great learning environment. Um, we did some good journalism. And I always um, credit that opportunity and that environment with uh, my love for community journalism and my belief that um, you know local journalism was sort of where it's at terms of the impact we could have on our communities. In 90, I got the opportunity to move up to the Poughkeepsie Journal as the top editor and um, uh, fell in love with the Mid-Hudson Valley um, and uh, always vowed that it would be my permanent home, although Gannett had different, op- different ideas for me. Um, and after um, three or four years, uh, transferred me up to uh, Binghamton, New York, um, where I was the top editor there. And um, a couple of years, three or four years later, um, the opportunity to become a publisher was presented to me. And after, so after about 25 years in the editorial side of the business, I considered the options and decided to take the plunge and became publisher at the Ithaca Journal, um, which was a great town to live in Ithaca. Um, four hours from everywhere, however, um, and in the snow belt, um, but a great community and we made great lifelong friends. But I always wanted to come back to Poughkeepsie and several years after that job, um, I was, uh, when Dick Wago was getting ready to retire uh, after an illustrious career at the Poughkeepsie Journal, I was uh, given the opportunity to come back to Poughkeepsie where I always wanted to come back to and end my career. And in 20. 2004, I came back to um, the Poughkeepsie Journal as the publisher, where um, you know I kind of uh, always wanted to uh, be. Um, I think the transition from editor to publisher was a natural one for me. Um, and one of the things that always made a great a, a great decision for me is that I still was able to keep my hands on the editorial side of the business. I also was able to take off some of the restrictions on being on the edit as being an editor as I was able to get more involved in community activities of course um as you know uh, I become became very very active in a bunch of community activities being serving on a number of uh boards and and being chair of a, of a couple of them so that was um something that um was a bonus on becoming on the business side of the of the ledger so to speak so you've been a reporter, you've been an editor, you've been a publisher, and I think you've also told me that you were parts of various state associations that um, in the media world. Yep, I was um, I, I was a long a long time um, uh, trustee of the New York State um, Newspaper Publishers Association, and I actually was chair of that board also for one or two terms, and uh, it was. Uh, an organization that also went through many, many changes as the business changed. And I'm sure we're going to discuss that in the next 35 to 40 minutes as, um, you know, the, the member organizations throughout the state um, went from being robust and cash rich to being less so 
<laughs> well, I'll put it like that. And oh. uh, you know, and and, and had to uh, uh, do a lot, a lot more with a lot less. Long before the pandemic, there were those who were writing the death of the modern American newspaper, and then you know, as a result of social media, where were we before the pandemic? Long before the pandemic, people were talking about the death of the American newspaper, that we were losing subscribers, that young people weren't coming to newspapers. But um, I would go to conferences, even as a middle editor, um, and people would um, talk about the need to attract readers because we're not going to get the readers that would be able to support our advertising. But the truth of the matter is, right up until the 2008 financial crisis, newspapers were really, really strong business operations. Um, We were able to have enough readers uh, to deliver strong results for our advertisers. We made good money. We had very, very strong profit margins. And we were in very, very good shape. Had the 2008 financial crisis not hit, who knows where we would be? Of course, with the advent and the growth of the internet, um, you could accuse the industry of really not keeping up and getting out ahead of that and becoming uh, getting on the digital bandwagon, so to speak, quickly enough. And really not figuring out a way to not only attract digital subscribers and digital readers, but never really figuring out a way how to monetize that. I hate that word, but that is an important thing when you're talking about the business. So yes, it was, um, it was a factor um, before the pandemic. And of course the pandemic is something that um, accelerated a lot of those factors. So within the Hudson Valley, and, and just correct me if I characterize this wrong, it, it, it almost feels as if the, um, Newspapers are even being consolidated more that the the three prominent go-to newspapers when I started pattern were the Poughkeepsie Journal, the Times-Herald Record, and the Journal News. But they now appear to be almost one newspaper frequently seeing the same story. They're all owned by Gannett, I think. So help me out if I've mischaracterized that. Well, that's true. Um, the Gannett is not the Gannett that I worked for. This is the new Gannett. In 2019, Gannett and Gatehouse merged, and it was really a takeover by, um, by Gatehouse. And it just adopted the Gannett name. So it really uh, is Gatehouse. Who And Barry, who, who is Gatehouse? Well, Gatehouse was another large... Um, media newspaper, largely newspaper company um, that um, owned a bunch of regional newspapers, I think including Middletown. They took the Gannett name, but the people who run the new company are all the top people are the gatehouse people. Continued to consolidate operations. So it became a larger and larger company. And this happened not only in the Hudson Valley, but around the company. And the um, and staff was cut. Um, I think in the last um, few months, they made buyout offers to anyone who would take it. Wow. Um, and so, and I'm not being critical of this. I'm just stating what I know, um, my understanding of what of what happened. 
And so what they end up doing is uh, providing more regional content um, and uh, the control of what appears tends to be run out of a uh, regional hub. Um, and um, so that is, you know, something that is a different than when I, I ran the paper out of 85 Civic Center Plaza, so to speak. Absolutely. And so it's interesting that as the, the papers that I knew when I first got to Pattern, you know, 15 years ago, continue to consolidate. I have this feeling, though, that there is the rise of the really local paper, either print or online, that so many of the communities in the Hudson Valley, Beacon or or around uh, Ellenville or uh, in Sullivan County, the Democrat, it seems like almost everyone either has a little print paper or an online paper covering a tiny geographic area is that yeah, the, the, these kind of micro sites um, operations are um, up and running. I have no idea how their finances work or whether they make any money or not, but I do know that there a lot of them are out there and and beating the bigger boys to stories on a regular basis. Um, um, that said, um, I do have to wonder from a First Amendment point of view, who is out there providing the checks and balances on local government uh, these days, like we used to do in the good old days, um, as opposed to what I would call um, press release journalism. There's a lot of stories out there that are just basically um, rewrites of what's handed to reporters as opposed to people going to the scenes of, of, um, of uh, what's happening out there or going to meetings or actually trying to dig through public records and trying to scratch the surface, scratch below the surface to find out what's really going on. I mean, there's, a, there's some of that going on at, at, um, at the Gannett paper still. There's a, you know, like David McKay Wilson is still out there doing really good investigative journalism, but there's not as much of that going on as it was in the days that, um, you know, back into the uh, 90s and early 2000s, as you would see. And that's one of the things that worries me as um, vibrant newspaper operations become far and fewer. So I, I think that's a good place to jump off on the issue of, quote unquote, fake news. It's, it's you know, it, it, it's sad since, you know, I grew up and am old enough to remember who Edward R. Moreau and Walter Cronkite were. And, and you had this sense that when it was uttered by Walter Cronkite, on the CBS Evening News, it was fact, it was checked, it was researched, and yet the attack on media being fake news, and very much to your point, the role of the media as the fourth estate and being there to challenge government at all levels, whether 
You know, we've seen it play out in Washington or Poughkeepsie. Um, yeah. Where where are we and, and how do we ensure the vitality of the fourth estate? One question. And the second question, how do we restore people's confidence? Well, let me let me kind of go back to where I think this has all come from. And this is kind of my off-the-cuff analysis, for lack of a better word. You know, I think it started with talk radio back in the, you know, 20 years ago. And it morphed into what's happened on cable, cable, um, cable, I'll, I'll call it quote-unquote news. Um, you know, and, and over the years, that has become more fractured and more fractious in a way. Um, and, you know, people don't go to these stations to find out what's happening or to really find out a fair and balanced, to use that term, um, reflection of what's going on out there. They turn into these stations to reinforce their entrenched beliefs, right? Yes, and and um, and in in many respects, it's serving to further divide an already divided country, and that's very sad and very scary. And how you reverse that, I, I'm not sure I have the prescription for that, except that maybe that there's a leader out there who will be able to do that someday. Um, some um, hopefully. The leader will be someone who can bring people together as opposed to a leader who will further divide people. That's the scary part. You don't know who that person might be someday. Um, you know, there are still good broadcasts and, and, um, and, 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 and reporters out there who report fairly, but I don't know that people recognize that anymore. And um and, and that's a sad state of affairs, to, to be honest with you, because people tend to look at things through their own set of lenses. And, um, and, and we've, we've come this far and reversing that trend is going to be a very hard um, thing to do. You know, I, I've often thought that, you know, the, the actual reporting, uh, there, uh, let's see if I can break it down this way and see if you agree with this. So like, if you take even the two biggest, most trusted newspapers being, let's say, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, that their reporting is very good up until you get to the editorial page. Right. And the editorial page is got, you know, in both newspapers has very little to do with I'm going to say, and this is a little unfair, but it has little to do with the actual news. It is an editorial. It is. And the same thing has happened on CNN and Fox that most people think when they're watching CNN and Fox between, let's say, 8 and 11 p.m., that it is the news. I refer to it as news commentary. It yeah, is. It's, it, it's, a, it's the equivalent of an op-ed page. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, but people listen and they go, yes, I heard it on CNN and that therefore it's true. I heard it on Fox. And then depending on your you know, point of view, as you said before, 
you will then refer to it as, well, those people don't reinforce what I want to know. Therefore, it's fake news or it's not real news. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with, with, with it is that, you know, you have MSNBC on the far left and you have Fox News on the far right. And you would have hoped that somebody would, some station would be in the middle. CNN obviously isn't. Um, and the problem is, is that they probably wouldn't get any ratings <laughs> if, if it was a down the middle fact-based broadcast, which is a sad state of affair. But now you mentioned the term fake news. The other term that kind of goes along with that would be alternative facts, right? Right. Um, right. So, you know, kind of with, with those, those kind of terms floating out there, we're in a, we're in a situation where people have to try to get the, muddle their way through the wads of information out there and try to form their own opinion about things. Now, whether people take the time to do that or they're easily swayed by people who um, shout above the din, that's another story. Well, and it would seem, Barry, that right now, you know, for the last year during a pandemic, if there was ever a time that we needed facts, and we needed science, that this is it. And yet, you know, I love to say, oh, how naive Jonathan was when he said, pandemic, that'll be the thing that'll bring us all together because we're all in it together and how wrong I was. And yeah, isn't that, isn't that the truth? You know, that you could polarize a pandemic. Now, it was there a role for the media to... I mean, to try its best to unpolarize it or, or, you know, it, the media, unfortunately, is no different than any other part of society. It is, you're on one side or the other. The same tribalism exists in the media right now. Well, a- the, the, the pandemic was, was, was polarized, wasn't it? I mean, yes. it became an issue to be polarized as opposed to an issue to bring people together. And that was the problem. It could have been uh, an issue. It could have been a um, something that brought us together, but it was, it was not used that way. So therefore it became the same kind of issue as any other and it polarized people, you know, down here, um, I, I guess you probably ended up being on the national news. They, they showed a, uh, a Tampa supermarket where nobody wore masks. And the owner basically said, I don't believe anybody, I don't believe 400 people, 400,000 people have died. Well, it's now 500,000, 400,000 people have died of this pandemic. It's, it's not true. You know, it's no more than, it's no more than heart disease. And, you know, he's still, he was still espousing that. And he basically said, no one needs to wear a mask in my supermarket. Yeah, no, people, was, were mer- people were merrily walking in. It was, was a national, it was a it national was a story. National- so, okay. Yes. So let me let me see if I can ask you to 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 you know think out loud with me. So if you were still either the editor or the publisher of a newspaper like the Poughkeepsie Journal, uh, you know, a, a newspaper in Dutchess County, New York, how would you have covered the story of the pandemic 
in an effort, you know, I, I only know you of the highest caliber of news reporting. And, and I asked this question, making no judgment whatsoever on the current Poughkeepsie Journal. I'm just saying, yeah. so, so, so what would you have done? Let, let, me, let, me, let me try to give you an analogy. So one of the more difficult and divisive um, issues to cover for the last 20, 25 years has always been the fight over abortion. Okay. And it was always an issue, always very, very difficult on how to cover that because you couldn't satisfy either side. Um, if you called it um, right to life, um, people were opposed to that. It's not right to life, it's something else. If you called it pro-abortion, well, it wasn't pro-abortion, it was right to choose, if you know what I mean. It was, you never could satisfy the other side. So you basically try to present all sides of the story as fairly as you could. When you wrote a story on uh, the covering, you made sure to cover both sides if there was a rally, if you, met, if you covered, uh, you basically had to try to be as fair as possible. You went back to the roots of journalism, get the other side of the story, make sure you quote as many sources in each story as you can, and don't um, buy into one side or the other without giving the other side of the story an opportunity to have a fair say. I, I think that would be the same formula in, in this, in that you know that there were gonna be two sides of the story and that there were gonna be people who disagree with you, but try to go to expert sources where you can and let the facts speak for themselves. I so hope that I, no, no, no. That it's very helpful in in two ways. First of all, I think what I'm hearing in that is partially an answer to how we may get back to the respect that journalism once had, and and still has in many places. But you know, it's been under attack for years now, and and that is you're saying you go back to basics. You go back to journalism 101 to say how do you construct a news story is partially what I heard in that, yeah. um, and that I think that becomes really important. Um, but uh, you, you know, it's it's interesting, Barry, that right now in the Hudson Valley, twenty fully twenty five percent of people won't get vaccinated. Now, some of it are people that are anti-vaxxers. Some of it are people that are simply distrustful. Some of it are people that say, well, I'm going to wait until other people get it to see if there's something bad with the vaccine. What role does journalism, if you were assigning reporters, how would you construct that story? You know, where would, who would you be getting to try to say, let's make certain that people can hear all sides to this. And let's just say it's on the vaccine for a moment. Well, I think, I think my answer is the same in that you, you go to the ex, as expert sources as you can, but you always give the other side an opportunity to, to weigh in. Um, but I think the, the preponderance would come down on the side of, of, of people getting the vaccine, but I think we do need to always give people the opportunity to speak out. Um, however, I think 
a well-constructed story would speak for itself in terms of expert, so expert sources giving the information, but you would try to present in a well-rounded story and sidebars and graphics, the data and sourcing that would let people make up their own minds intelligently. Okay. Not, not just presenting opinions, but presenting facts as well. I mean, it's not just enough to quote a doctor saying it's safe, but to also make sure that, that the, the information in the article is also presenting the data in a way that people can understand it. So does that so make let, sense? Yeah, it does. But let's go back to the, the use of the term alternative fact, which is a you know fascinating concept to me since there are either facts or there aren't. I don't know what an alternative fact is. It's an alternative fact is not the truth, in my opinion, <laughs> but that's that's just my opinion. But okay. Well right, but it, it's so permeated our society right now that the notion is well that's not necessarily well, all right. so, so so in an article um all right so let me so let me let's let's give you another let's go back to another example. My my esteemed colleague John Penny, yes, um, who um, presided with with esteem over our editorial page for many many years. Um, we we had a policy of of uh, running as many letters to the editor as possible, um, and a, even though a letter to the editor was an opinion, people would often try to cite as fact something in, in their letter to back up their opinion. Okay. However, we would research that fact to make sure it was true, to make sure, so we would not mislead our reader. So unless we could, we or the writer could provide evidence that the fact that was being cited was in fact true, we wouldn't run that letter or we would ask the writer to revise it. We always tried to write a letter, but if someone said the Holocaust didn't happen, that was not a letter that would meet our standards. Got it. Okay. But you know that's an extreme example. There are many examples where people would take a little liberty with facts and we would call them out on it in terms of you need to provide supporting documentation for us to run that letter. All right, so, so let me use so that. I think the same, thing, the same thing would be in terms of, well, vaccines cause, um, vaccines cause um, autism. Right, that's okay, a good so, example. So if somebody was, you know, was, why aren't you taking the vaccine? Well, vaccines cause autism. Well, can you show me proof of that before it's gonna run in an article? You know what I'm saying? Yes. And and in fact, that was just brought up. I just heard that this morning, you know, as one of the reasons that people still resist the vaccine. And yet the news story said, do you have any proof of that? And there's been no substantial, you know, at least the this news story said there was no substantiation of the fact that the vaccine caused autism or vaccines okay, in general. So that, re that reporter seemed to do his job. And, okay. and so some people would probably say that, that you know, people who had a predis predisposed opinion that 
vaccines cause autism probably were upset with that reporter. But the truth of the matter, most people who look at things down the middle would say, I, I see where that's coming from. All right. So you come from, you know, certainly your career was certainly in, in print media. Yes. So then social media really, I think, as you say, you, you use the, the right around the Great Recession as a point in time where things start to take off online. And I, I will say it's very interesting that so there's 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 Facebook, there's Twitter, there is uh, uh, there's a podcast for everything. There is so much online information. Now it's not necessary or an opinion, and it's not necessarily the fact that you're looking for. A lot of times you're just looking for someone to reinforce your beliefs. But at the same time, Barry, it's very you know, as someone who likes newspapers, sitting in my computer, I can now access newspapers all over the country. And well, yeah, and, and and let me just say to you, as a subscriber to newspapers. I still get articles on Facebook and Twitter prior to me getting them in the newspaper. And I never understood that. Why am I being, why am I being disadvantaged as a subscriber? If you, if you know what I mean, Uh but that's one of the things that I don't think the industry has ever fully figured out. Um, I'm sure that somebody believes that that drives readers to the newspaper afterwards. But if I've already read the article, that's one less reason to pick up the newspaper when it comes on Sunday. My personal opinion. Uh, I know I'm probably sounding like an old man, <laughs> but <laughs> an old cogity old man. But l- let me just give you a couple of quick facts here um, to, to give you the kind of scope that we're talking about. Now, Gannett, which has 260 properties, right? Okay. The new Gannett has 260 properties. Its revenue in Q40, Q4 of 2020 was $115 million revenue. By the way, it took a loss on that, but nevertheless, $115 million. The New York Times, a success story, has more digital subscribers than regular subscribers. It did $509 million. Sounds like a really good success story, and it is, right? Right. $509 million in Q4 of revenue. Google, $56 billion <laughs> in revenue. <laughs> uh, yes. How do you compete with that? And now what and, is it? Apple now has a news service, <laughs> completely digital. Right. And so is that where this is all heading post-pandemic, that you know, are we again writing the epitaph of the print media? You know, I, I think the national newspapers like the Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, I don't see them going anywhere for many, many moons. Um, whether the local newspapers survive in their current form, you know, I don't I, I, I think people have been writing them off for years. I was asked years ago. Um, how long do you think a Poughkeepsie Journal will be around? And it's still around. It's not in the same form that it was when I was there or when I got there, but it's still around. Um, 
But here, here's a little harbinger. I um, taught a class at the Marist Center for Lifetime Study. And um, people started asking me questions about the Poughkeepsie Journal. And there must have been 120, 125 senior citizens in this um, or in this um, class. Now, these are people who you would think of um, would be loyal newspaper readers. And they asked me this typical question. Well, Barry, as the former publisher of the Poughkeepsie Journal, how much longer do you think the Poughkeepsie Journal will be around? Now, this was four years ago or so. And I said, well, let me turn this question around and ask you, how many of you still subscribe to the Poughkeepsie Journal? And Maybe 20% 20, 20 of the hands went up. Right. How many yeah. of you are farmer subscribers? Everyone's hand went up. Well, that is for, <laughs> that's quite telling. You know, Barry, I still get up Saturday morning because I am of that age that likes to turn the pages and see what's on the next page. And, I, and also partially limit screen time. So I'll pick up the Wall Street Journal. I'll pick up the, you know, like, let's say it's Saturday. So that's my big day where it's the Wall Street right. Journal, the New York Times, the local Democrat. It's a regional. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Yep, local paper in Sullivan County. Then I'll, I'll get the New York Post um, for another take on what's happening. And... The, and the Times Herald record for, you know, Duchess, Ulster and Orange News. Now, I come home. I'm all happy. I sit down to with a you know cup of tea or something. And my 20 year old kids come in and go, what are you doing? Are you? Yeah. What, what, what? Why? What a waste. Of, you know, not not only is it a waste of time from their perspective, but they look at it. And go. You're wasting paper. You're wasting. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. killing trees. What are you doing? And they're they're going. I could if it was news. I'd just wait for it to come up on my, uh, you know, on my uh, CNN account or my Twitter feed or something else. And and the same is true with me watching the nightly news at six thirty. Or I watch it religiously. Yes, but they look at me and go, "There, why, why do you do that?" What do you say to, you know, what instead of your class of seniors, Barry, what would you say if it was a class of 20-somethings? I mean, I guess the issue is, is the content good enough? And is the delivery in a format that is convenient to the reader? I, I think that the... You can't stick to a delivery method that doesn't please the reader. And 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 if a young person does not want to read on fiber, you have to give it to them on cyber. Very, very, very well put, you know, because I think it, as I think about it, my two children are big fans of podcasts. They absolutely go to them to listen to, you know, the issues that are of importance to them. So. They've grown up in a different era, and I, I here I <laughs> sorry, but I find myself again wondering: Is this the end? The New York Times Sunday edition keeps looking smaller. 
they had to invent entire new sections. The stay at home. What what is the section? Right, stay, stay at home. I think right. Yes, which is I love that. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. It's full of ideas and recipes and ways that you could get through the pandemic. I thought it was very very. And I get and I get three mini puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's very clever. But if this, if a younger generation, because certainly my father started started me reading the New York Times. And I, I, I probably, you could count on one hand, the number of editions that I have missed in my entire life. But that is not true for younger people. No, and, not at all. Not at all. And so, but, but it's got somewhere in there, I'm wondering, is there, is, is the key, and maybe they've got it right, that they can listen to so many sources in the way in which they want to, that they can then formulate their own judgment. But I wonder, going back to something you raised earlier, which is, are they, are each of these sources really doing fact-based journalism where they're really checking it? Because that's journalism 101. And if you don't know the difference between that, then yes, you're, you can listen to fake news and alternative facts? Well, I mean, it comes down to the content has to be there for people to go to it. They're not going to read the Poughkeepsie Journal if there's nothing in it, in it to interest people. And yeah. if the content is still always geared toward middle age and older, there's no reason for a young person to go to it, right? Absolutely. So, okay. So rather than my pessimism, I'm going to ask a, a longtime uh, member of this profession, what's your positive spin then on the future of media in whatever format it is? How well, will I, it, I, I, I will, I will, I will frame it in a, in a prescription, I think. Um, and that is that Journalism that sheds light will illuminate, and that's a good thing. And ultimately, people will recognize that and and appreciate it, and it will ensure the future of journalism because it's essential to our democracy. And without it, I don't know where we'll be as a country. So... I have faith that people will recognize that ultimately. Barry Rothfeld, thank you so much for your time and joining us on Patterns and Paradigms. This is Jonathan Drapkin, and I look forward to our listeners joining me in the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.